Uh, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be together. We are in week three of our series called God's King. We're studying the life of David this summer. And so far, in week one, we saw that David was chosen and anointed by Samuel to be king, right in front of his brother. And then last week, we studied the familiar story of David and Goliath, where we saw that God raised up David to bring victory to the people of Israel. And so David's doing pretty well so far, right? Week one, he's elevated in front of his family. Week two, he's elevated in front of the entire nation. He's been chosen by God. He's loved and adored by the people. Surely the next step for him is just to become king. Well, not so fast. <laughs> it's actually quite a while between this and when David actually becomes the king of Israel. These next three chapters change the course of David's life. And his life mostly changes because of a man named Saul. Saul was king of Israel. He was the most powerful man in the nation. He was prideful, he was arrogant, and as a result, he was tremendously insecure. And he made David's life a living hell for many years. And it all starts in these three chapters, 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. But the one person who stood by David's side and helps him get through this next season of life is a man named Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend. And how many of you have learned in life that what helps us get through the hardest times of life sometimes are friends? Friends are a real gift from God, people who will come alongside of us and walk with us through certain circumstances. And so we're going to talk about friendship this morning. What is it? What does it look like? Where do we find the power to be a good friend? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at three different scenes in the, these three chapters, and we're going to learn three different things about friendship. So let's look first at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. It says, As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So Saul said, from now on, David, you'll live right here with us. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out, and he was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So the first thing that we learn about friendship here is that friends lift each other up. Friends lift each other up. Jonathan was the son of Saul. Not just was he the son of Saul, he was the oldest son of Saul. So what that meant was he would have been, he should have been, he could have been the very next king of Israel. And back in this time, families were very careful about protecting their children, especially their oldest sons, because they wanted a dynasty. They wanted their kingdom to reign for many, many years. They wanted to pass it off from one father to the next son to the grandson. They wanted the kingship to stay in the family. And Jonathan was perfectly aligned to be the next king of Israel. So he should have seen David as a threat, because David was wildly popular. He was victorious in battle. People were beginning to recognize him. Jonathan should have seen David as a threat, but instead he saw David as a friend. And he lifted him up. And he gave him, did you notice that he gave him some things, right? He gave him his belt and his armor and his bow, and that's all cool. But the most significant thing that Jonathan gives to David is his robe. And the reason why this matters is because back then the best robe in the land would have been worn by the king. But the second best robe 
in the land would have been worn by Jonathan. And it was a robe that marked Jonathan as royalty, as the next king. And so when Jonathan strips himself of this robe, he is also stripping himself of kingship and title and power and position. And he's saying, David, I want to give this to you. I want to lift you up. I don't know why Jonathan knew that David would be the next king of Israel, but somehow he knew. Three chapters later, he actually says to David, you will be the next king of Israel. And what's so amazing about this and what's so beautiful about real friendship is that in real friendship, we will disadvantage ourselves to lift other people up. We'll lift our friends up. I was thinking, how do we do this? And there's a few ways that friends lift up each other. The first one is is that friends encourage each other. How many of you could use a little encouragement every now and then. You know, I've, I've never talked to anybody who's like, I've just, I'm way too encouraged. <laughs> I have way too much, too many people are encouraging me. I just wish people would stop encouraging me. We can all use encouragement, a kind word, someone who notices something good about you, someone who just says something just at the right time to lift your spirits. And if you're a Christian here this morning, as Christians, we actually have more to encourage our friends with uh, than, than maybe others do. What I'm saying is, we don't just say to people, hey, you got this, you can do a good job, we'll pat you on the back, I'm here for you, I'm here with you. Christians can encourage each other with words like this, hey, God created you in his image. And he, and, and he sent his son to give his life for you, and he placed his spirit within you. And as long as you're here taking breath, that means that God has a work for you to do. He has plans and purposes, and God doesn't make mistakes, and God doesn't waste anything, and everything is useful in his kingdom, and you are useful in his kingdom. And we can also encourage each other by looking toward heaven, looking forward to the return of Christ and the future resurrection and and, and all things being made new. Paul says, encourage each other with these words. And so we can encourage each other. Make sure that in your Christian friendships, you aren't just encouraging each other with generic platitudes but that you're actually speaking the gospel to each other and reminding each other of the goodness of Jesus Christ and what it means for our lives. So friends encourage each other, but they also have to exhort each other every now and then. And exhorting is a little different than encouraging. If encouraging is a pat on the back, exhorting sometimes is a kick to the butt, right? It's like a let's get going. It's, the, it's your trainer at the gym who's like, come on, push further, lift more, run further, right? Friends push us and challenge us and call us. And they, by calling us to, be, uh, to grow and to stretch, and to be who God created us to be, they're lifting us up. We need friends like that. My, my friend Jared, who's sitting in the back, he lives in my neighborhood. And I know that one of the ways he exhorts me is every time he goes out for a run, he texts me and says, I'm going for a run. Do you want to join? I've never said yes yet, but, but I appreciate the thought. I appreciate the, the thought. I have ridden my bike next to him a few times very slowly. Um, but we need people like that in our lives who are not just encouraging us with kind words, but exhorting us to grow, lifting us up. Another, thing, another way that friends lift us up is they just, we enjoy life together. We enjoy the best of times. There's an old saying out there that friendship multiplies joys, but it also divides griefs. See, friendship's not just about enjoying the best of times. Friendship is about enduring the worst of times. And in my life, when I've gone through what have been some of the worst times in my life, I've found that it's the friend's that God gives me, that come alongside me, that just check in on me and send me a text and just let me know that they're praying for me and that they're thinking of me. Friendship, it can, it can have so much impact and we can lift each other up. And here's one of the really cool things about friendship. Friendship provides you with the necessary opportunity to stop lifting yourself up and start lifting someone else up. 
See, our default mode, our human heart, our tendency, our propensity is to always promote ourselves, lift ourselves up, build platforms for ourselves. But friendship is an opportunity for you to build a platform for somebody else and say, I want to lift you up. Friendship should be an exercise in putting selfishness to death. It's a tool God's given us to grow us. Earlier this week, I texted one of my friends. His name actually is Jonathan, David and Jonathan. And uh, I text him. We've been friends our whole lives, really. And him and his family had gone on a little vacation, a little getaway up to Cuca Lake. And, of course, vacationing is very different right now. We can't go very far. So I was curious because the pictures on Facebook look great. And so I said, Jonathan, where did you go? And, and how do I find out about possibly renting the place out? And he texts me back. He's like, I'll send you the link. But first thing you need to know is this person's a good friend of mine. So they gave me a really good deal. And it's not really a, normally it's not a very affordable place, but they're a friend of mine. So naturally, naturally, I replied, how do I make this person my friend? <laughs> and then he replied, he can't be your friend because he's my friend. <laughs> to which I replied, you really need to listen to my sermon this Sunday. Sometimes friendship actually becomes an exercise in selfishness, and we don't want to share our friends. We want to keep our friends to ourselves. But you know, actually, when you keep your friend to yourself, you actually lose something about that friend because the bigger your friendship circle gets, the more you actually get to see something about that friend because there's things that other friends will bring out of that friend that you can't bring out of them. You need a circle of friends to fully see somebody and enjoy them in friendship. So friendship should not be selfish. It should be selfless. Now, reflect on your friendships. What type of friend are you? What are your friendships like? Are your friendships about what you can get out of it, or is it about what can I do for others to lift them up and to strengthen them? Friends lift each other up. Now, at this point in the story, David's life begins to change dramatically, and it's because of a song. The women of Israel write this song, and they begin to sing this song about David and Saul, and it goes like this. David, or Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul doesn't like that tune. He's not a big fan of that music. And so he loses his mind. He's enraged. And Saul's not just enraged that they would compare them, but he's enraged that David, this shepherd boy, would even be mentioned in the same breath. He's thinking, I'm the king. I'm the ruler. I'm the one with all the power. How could you write a song that mentions David and I even in the same breath? And this sets Saul off, and he begins to go on really almost a comical effort to kill David. It actually, if you've seen the cartoon Wile E. Coyote and uh, the Roadrunner, this is sort of what it reminds me of the next few chapters. Here's King Saul trying to kill David, and nothing he does works. Nothing he does works. The first thing that he does is uh, he calls David in to play music for him. D David was a wonderful musician, and David's playing some sort of a lyre, some sort of a harp, and Saul grabs a spear and throws the spear at David, trying to pin him to the wall. It's like, Saul, you, you know, harp music may not be your thing, but that's a little bit over the top. And so what he then does is he puts David in charge of the most dangerous missions that his army is going on, thinking that maybe David will die. Well, that doesn't work. And then you've heard the saying, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. That's Saul's next strategy. He says, I'm going to marry my oldest daughter to David. And in doing so, David will become an heir to the throne, and the Philistines will try to kill David. But David doesn't want to marry the oldest daughter, but he does end up marrying uh, another daughter of Saul. And Saul says to David, if you want to marry this daughter, you have to pay what's called a bride's price. Now, Saul didn't need this money. This was just a trap for David. He didn't need anything. And he says to David, here's the bride's price. I don't want money. I want 100 dead Philistines. If you want to marry her, that's what you have to do. 
And David goes out and God protects him. And David actually uh, conquers 200 Philistines. He gets married to this woman. And then one night, uh, one night someone tells him, don't sleep in your bed tonight because Saul's sending somebody to kill you in your bed as you sleep. And, then, and nothing works. And then finally Saul's exasperated and he just goes public and he tells everybody, we're going to kill David. Whatever it takes, we're going to kill him. He tells Jonathan. He tells everyone. And this is where we learn the second thing about what great friends do is that friends speak up for each other. 1 Samuel 19, verse 4, this is right after Saul has said, we're killing David. It says that Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, so Jonathan now is reasoning with Saul on the behalf of his friend David. He's saying, let not the king sin against his servant David. He has not sinned against you, and his deeds have actually brought good to you. He took his life into his hand and he struck down the Philistine. He's talking about Goliath. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. This is pretty remarkable, actually. More remarkable than we would think at first glance. The two things that this culture back then valued the most were, was loyalty to family and respect for elders. David really goes out on a limb here. He goes against his family and he goes against an elder, his father, the king. And he speaks up. Uh, sorry, Jonathan does that. And he speaks up for David. Now, one thing I want you to notice is really important is that when Jonathan speaks up for David, he speaks the truth. See, so this, this is not an argument for friends cover friends. Friends lie for friends. Friends, you know, ignore all the mistakes and errors and flaws in friends' life. That's not, what, that's not what Jonathan is doing here. Jonathan is speaking the truth. He's saying, David has done nothing to sin against you. He fights for you. He protects you. And he speaks up for him. And here's what Jonathan is trying to do. He's trying to build a bridge between David and his dad, Saul. You know, all of our words will either build bridges between people or build walls between people. The way that we speak about people, the way that we speak to people, building bridges or building walls. And the Bible is very clear that our words are powerful. The scriptures say that the power of life and death is in the tongue. And some of you are still living under words that were said to you by parents, by family members, things that you heard your whole life, and it still has a lot of power in you and over you. That's the power of words. And so when we speak, we can speak life, we can speak death. We can build bridges. We can build walls. Friends speak up for each other. So what we do is we pay attention to how we speak of our friends. We pay attention to how our friends speak of our friends. And listen, pay attention to how your friends speak of other people. My oldest daughter, Lilia, is preparing to transition from a Christian private school as a sixth grader to a public school in seventh grade. And we know that this is going to be a very, well, it's going to be a different experience for everybody this fall. But we know going from a private school to a public school is a different experience, right? And middle school is not the easiest time in the world, is it? Probably one of the hardest times in the world. And so we're preparing her for all sorts of things that she might encounter that she's not used to. And one of the things that we're, I've said to her is, Lilia, if you have a friend that will gossip to you, they will eventually gossip about you. If you have friends that tear people down in front of you, eventually they're going to tear you down in front of other people because that's the way that they use their words. And when it becomes advantageous for them to use their words that way against you, they will. And we have to pay attention to the words and the ways that we speak. C.S. Lewis wrote a tremendous book called The Four Loves. 
And in it, he talks about friendship. And he says that friendship is different than romantic love because in romantic love, what, cu- what keeps two people close together is that they are sh- a shared gaze at one another. They stand face to face and their eyes are locked on each other and that's what keeps them together. But friendship is not face to face. Friendship, C.S. Lewis suggests, is shoulder to shoulder. And it's a shared gaze at something outside of yourself that keeps you together. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that every friendship begins something like this. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And a friendship begins because of a commonality. Earlier this year in February, before COVID changed a lot of our ability to travel and move around, our family went down to Florida for a week and we spent some time at Disney. One day we were walking around Disney and I see this guy. He goes walking by. I don't know who he is, but he's wearing the soccer jersey of my favorite football club, Liverpool Football Club, who, by the way, just lifted the trophy this past week, in case you're curious. Um, And so I see this guy and I don't know this guy, but as soon as I see the jersey, I now have something in common with him. And I go out of my way to strike up this conversation with him, complete stranger. This is not my personality, by the way. I do not strike up conversations with random strangers, but this connected us. And my wife snapped a picture of it because she's creepy, I guess, uh, or because she thought I was being creepy. But either way, we immediately, like, I don't know anything about what he believes. I don't know anything about his religion, his faith, his politics, his socioeconomic standing. I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter because now we have something special that we're connected and it keeps us shoulder to shoulder. And that's the way that friendship works, which, by the way, just a little side note for the church The thing that keeps our church family shoulder to shoulder is our shared love for Jesus and his mission. Nothing else and nothing less. We can disagree on a lot of other things, but we have to have a shared love for his mission and for his work and for who he is. And if we have a shared love for Jesus and his mission, it will keep us shoulder to shoulder no matter anything else that we don't see eye to eye on. Because it's the greatest, it is the only thing that the people of God should really center themselves around, who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's asked us to do. Now, friendships should be based on common likes, but here's what happens. Sometimes friendships actually get based on common dislikes. And you've got to be careful about this because this can create an unhealthy relationship. That really what binds you together is that you both dislike, distrust, and hate the same thing. And you'll know this is your friendship, by the way, if the, listen to the content of your conversation. If the majority of your conversation with one of your friends is tearing down other people, then what's uniting you is not a shared love or passion for something, but a shared hate for something or dislike for something. It's not healthy. It's not a good friendship. It's not a good thing. Be careful and pay attention to what unites you to other people. Listen, I think we're good at this for the most part as a church, but as a church, we can always grow. Let's be a people. Let's be a church who protect each other with our words who speak up for each other. We hear somebody questioning somebody, we speak up for them. Let's not judge people by what we assume to be their motivations. Let's just see what they, who they actually are by their actions, right? We wanna be judged by our actions, but we judge other people by their motivations. And what I've learned in life is that when I assume a motivation behind something you just did, it actually reveals more about my heart than it does about yours. Because what it reveals is this is why I would have done what you just did in that situation, and all I've really done is expose the own unhealthiness in my own heart. So friends speak up for each other, and they speak life. Next, Saul has this change of heart. So you remember, Saul swore, as long as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Well, Saul is being afflicted and oppressed by evil spirits. He changes his heart, and he says, I want to kill David. 
And Jonathan says to David, hey, my dad's on the rampage again, and I don't know if you're safe or not, so I want you to hide. I'm going to go find out, and I'll come back and let you know. And Saul had thrown this banquet, and the whole reason Saul had thrown this banquet was because he wanted David to show up so he could kill David. And on day one of the banquet, David doesn't show up. And Saul thinks, well, maybe David's doing something or, or whatever. Maybe he's ceremonially unclean and he can't be here. He is a man of war. Day two, David doesn't show up again. And now Saul's getting irritated because the whole point of this party is to kill David. And Saul says to Jonathan, where is David? And Jonathan says, I gave him permission to go back and visit his dad, Jesse, in Bethlehem. And Saul flips his lid. He gets so angry. He gets so angry that he actually tries to throw a spear at his own son, Jonathan, which is a a pretty big clue that he's not very happy. And so Jonathan has set up this plan with David. And he said, David, tomorrow I'm going to go out to the field and I'm going to shoot some arrows and you hide over here in these bushes or whatever. And I want you to listen to what I say. And based on the instructions I give to the boy that's with me regarding the arrows, that's your code as to whether or not it's safe for you or it's not safe for you. So Jonathan goes out, he shoots the arrows, he gives the code phrase, which indicates, David, it is not safe for you. My dad means business and he wants to kill you. And this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 20. It says in verse 41, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind or beside the stone heap and he fell on his face to the ground and he bowed three times. And they kissed one another, which was an expression of affection. Uh, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Friends, look out for each other. Friends, look out for each other. Friends, protect David or Jonathan protected David. Now, how do we protect our friends? And the best way for us to protect our friends is to treat them with both kindness and truth. Kindness and truth. The Bible calls this speaking the truth in love. See, if you speak the truth without love, it can't be heard, right? Nobody can hear the truth if it's not in love. But if you only try to love people and you never speak the truth, then you can't help them. In one case, it can't be heard. In the other case, you, you can't help But God calls us to speak the truth in love. And sometimes being a good friend means having a hard conversation. Sometimes being a good friend means helping them notice a blind spot in their own life. Sometimes being a good friend means conflict. It means difficult things, right? And there are many people out there who will not risk the friendship to be a good friend. They will not risk the relationship to tell the truth. And they say, if I told my friend what I really see, he or she may not want to be my friend anymore. And I know that's a hard place to be in, but can I just say that's selfish? Because what you're saying is my comfort, the convenience and the joy of this relationship is more important than the fact that I can see they're headed for a cliff and I won't speak up and say anything. Now, you got to learn to speak from a place of love and from a place of truth. And sometimes it will jeopardize the friendship. But when, the, when your friend can see that you've spoken and you're looking out for them, very often it will come back together, I believe, and the friendship can be fully restored. Now, Jonathan brings to David news that he doesn't want to tell him. 
He'd rather say, David, I think maybe, you know, I mean, he's pretty angry, but this is how my dad is, you know, him up and down. He'll get over this. Just hang out. We'll just, we'll figure it out. But Jonathan knows now it's not safe for you to be here. And this sets in course. David becomes basically a refugee. And we'll see this in the next few weeks. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's hiding in caves. And why is he even alive? Because he had a friend who looked out for him. Jonathan looked out for him. Friends look out for each other. Now, let me finish by answering maybe the most important question this morning, and it's this. If we're supposed to be this sort of friend, friends who lift each other up, friends who speak up for each other, and friends who look out for each other, our biggest obstacle is actually that we're too busy lifting ourselves up, speaking up for ourselves, and looking out for ourselves. We're way too busy doing that to do that for others. So where do we as Christians find the motivation to be this sort of friend? I want to bring you to a passage in the New Testament that Paul writes, Romans 5. I'm going to read to you verses 6 through 11. I want you to listen carefully. Uh, Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time, and he died for sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's eyes, since we've been right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now look at these last two verses. It says, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. It wasn't that we got out of being enemies and then he made it. It was while we were still his enemies, God decided to make us his friends in Jesus Christ. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son Jesus. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Come on, if you're a believer this morning, that should cause your heart to rejoice and to find such satisfaction in Jesus Christ that he did what was necessary to make you not an enemy of God. Listen, you think David had a bad being an enemy of Saul. You don't want to be an enemy of the holy judge. You don't want to be an enemy of God. But the only way for us not to be enemies and to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and to be called friends of God was for Jesus Christ to come on our behalf and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. What do I mean? Jonathan, think about what he did for David. Jonathan disadvantaged himself so that David could rise up. Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, died the death of a criminal. Talk about disadvantaging yourself. He let himself be brought low so that we could be lifted up. Jonathan gave David his robe signifying royalty. Jesus Christ gives us his robe of righteousness which means we are accepted and approved of by the Father because of our faith and trust in what he's done for us. Jonathan spoke to his dad for David. <laughs> Jesus does the same for us. He speaks to his dad for you. He lives forever to make intercession for you. But it's even better because Jonathan spoke to Saul about David and he said, David's a good guy, you should give him a break. That's not what Jesus does for you and me because we aren't always good guys, are we? We don't always get it right. Jesus doesn't say, look at David this week. He was so good. Aren't you proud of him, Dad? Instead, he says, look at me. Jesus speaks for us based on his performance, not based on ours. And Jonathan protects David, sparing his life. 
And how is Je- what has Jesus done to spare our lives? He gave himself so that we can have eternal life, beginning now and forever. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's the friend that sticks closer than any brother. And when you get that, and you see Jesus lifting you up, speaking up for you, and looking out for you, you know what it does? It frees you from having to do it for yourself all day long. And now, you know what? Now you get to do it for others. Now you get to speak up for people who have no voice. Now you get to lift up people, even if it costs you something. Now you can look out for people because you know that Jesus is looking out for you. And it's the power and the motivation and the source of all great friendship is found in Jesus. Let's pray together.